The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to another edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, freshly escaped from the zoo, Tammy, the hairy Sasquatch Underwood. Hi, Tam. Hi. Did it hurt when they darted you? I mean, I know that they didn't use as strong a tranquilizers as I did, because obviously you made it in. But uh just want to know if those darts hurt. I am not speaking at you right now. You got to be sharp to pierce that hide. Well, you know, I got to have thick skin to work around you. How you, you like just them literally apples? called me a sea cow? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Let me give some context. So we, we we took a quick break. I made dinner. <laughs> it ate too much rice. So I said, God, I feel bloated like a manatee. And she says, well, you look like one, too. So what do they call them? A seahorse, a sea chicken? It's a sea cow. She says, you look like a sea cow. <laughs> I'm bloated like a manatee. Please sea don't run cow. me over with a speedboat. Can't help it. I love manatees. They're they cute. are kind of, I'd like to swim with one. They'd be afraid of you. would be like, no, that's a Sasquatch. I swam like swim. dolphins before. It was amazing. I loved it. Well, you know, dolphins will rape you. And I, well, they it, are fucking, they're the rapists of well, the ocean. Well, you know what's really funny is when we did the swimming with the dolphins down in uh, Cozumel, my, we both got, my son and I got the VIP package for my son and I. And, I mean, we all did our thing and everything. And then at the end, he had my son sit, stand there with the dolphin. And also he gave some command. The dolphin turned its head and stuck its tongue in my son's mouth. <laughs> It's oh. like, oh, gross. <laughs> You're my bitch now. That's right. You're mine. <laughs> Fast forward to adulthood. Now he's gay. <laughs> and Dolph- likes dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> and likes dolphins. So no, I'm kidding. I want, want to point that out. Dolphins will make you gay. <laughs> that is not true. He that did, happened when he was 18. He self-identifies now as a gay dolphin. You're so dumb. <laughs> or a sperm whale. <laughs> Either one. Oh my gosh. Okay. So okay. you're crazy. So before we even start this up, welcome to the Mormon Tabernacle. <laughs> this is a presentation of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Get out your Mormon Bible. <laughs> Turn the page. Just kidding, people. And go knock on doors on your bicycles wearing your white shirts as missionaries. You know. Now. Nah. No. I, I only say that because of the name of the person. I'm going to let you take yeah. it from here. <laughs> I knew that's why you were going there. Fucking No, because well, we're going to cover the case of Joseph P. Smith today. Not to be confused with the founder of the Mormon Church, but um, he is. his case is what spurred Carly's Law, which I'll get into a little bit later. Now, um, on February 1st, 2004... Um, Joseph Smith was sitting in his car on the side of the road in Sarasota, Florida. Now I know it's going to be weird as shit. Yeah. It's from fucking Florida. Right. And he was like sitting there and he had a bag of cocaine and a hypodermic needle just sitting on his lap. And he just realized, you know what? My life adds up. I got nothing. You know, I'm a nobody. I got nothing. Um, For the past 10 years, he'd been in, you know, on again, off again, drug addict. And his drug habit was actually very much on again, obviously, if he's sitting there with cocaine in his lap. And as a result of that latest relapse... Well, he, what year was this? 
2004. Okay. I wasn't sure if you said that or not, but... Yeah, I did. Oh. February 1st, 2004. Now, as a result of that latest relapse, he had a run... He had run out of his comfortable home in North Sarasota. His wife said, you know what? Get the fuck out. And he was fired from his job where he worked as an auto mechanic. He was 37 years old, and he was surf- couch surfing with friends, and one of them had actually loaned them loaned him their car, that 12-year-old Buick that he was, like, sitting in at that moment. So he found himself sitting in the car at 6.15 p.m. on that, it was a Sunday, and we'll, usually the area where he was sitting in is a well-traveled area. However, at that day, time on that day was Super Bowl Sunday. So almost everybody was at home watching the kickoff of the Super Bowl because, you know, the best part of the Super Bowl is the commercials. Okay. <laughs> Especially when some teams play. I think the best part of the Super Bowl is when it's over. <laughs> or when you see Janet Jackson's boob. Yeah. Anyways. That's right. Saw Janet Jackson's boobie. That's right. So he was sitting there alone with nothing but him and his cocaine and his thoughts. He was a par- he was on parole and probation. So I'm pretty sure, I mean, because we're not... People who are on parole and probation know that if they're going to use, they're going to go back to jail. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But maybe he'd just simply given up. Um, When it comes to some ex-cons, they will drop all pretense of civilized behavior when they realize they have nothing left. Right? It's like, I have no job. I have no place. I have nothing. You know, what the fuck? I might as well just go use. So that's how it was with Joseph Smith. Now, like I said, the streets were nearly abandoned, but as he was sitting there, he looked up and saw a figure walking on the sidewalk, which caught his eye, and it happened to be a girl. She had blonde hair, and she had it pulled back in a ponytail. She was wearing a tight, kind of a tight red top and some blue jeans, and she was carrying a backpack. Now and then, she broke into a trot for a few steps as if she was kind of late for something. Almost sounds like Dora the Explorer with blonde hair. Oh, right? So he actually sat and watched her for a while. Then he drove his car and put it in a position where he could intercept her as she took a shortcut through this isolated area behind a car wash. So he got out of the car, walked up to her, and she tried to, like, back away, but he grabbed her by the arm and led her back to the car and took her, you know, left with her. Now, um, her name was Carly Bruccia. Now, she was only 11 years old. She was born on March 16, 1992, and she was a sixth grader at the Sarasota's McIntosh Middle School, which was just a couple of blocks from where she got abducted. She only weighed 120 pounds, and she could have, but she could have been mistaken for an older teenager. Um, but she was that typical tween, you know? She, she loved the mall. She adored, uh, she adored, like, idolized Jennifer Lopez. She was very bubbly and animated. It's kind of kid who liked to greet her girlfriends with like big hugs. You know, kind of almost reminds me of that girl that Austin Sig killed. Oh yeah, okay. You know, with the way right. they describe her. Now her parents, Susan Sharpen and Joe Brucia, met and married on Long Island, where Carly was born, but they split up. You know, shortly after she was born, um, Sharpen took Carly to Sarasota to be near her grandparents and the child became a seasoned traveler at a young age where she would often take uh, plane trips alone to go see her father in New York. Um, and Sharpen eventually remarried and Carly lived with her mother, stepfather, and half-brother Leaf in a modest house on McIntosh Road. She was walking home after uh, leaving a friend's house from a sleepover. Um, and she called her mom from the house, the, the you know, 
of her friend's house at about 6 p.m. to say, hey, I'm on my way home, right? And it should have, it was only under a mile, so she should have been home within 15, 20 minutes, tops. But when she didn't show up by 6.30, her stepfather, Stephen Cancer, called the house of her friend and then went out looking for her. She'd been gone for just 10 minutes before her mom called 911, which is important because, you know, the quicker you can notice your child's gone and call 911, usually the better chances. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Every second counts it's, when a child's yes, abducted. Because they say anything longer than, four, like within hours, if not, you know, longest 48 hours. So Sharpin assumed authorities would immediately issue an Amber Alert for her daughter to place the entire community on a lookout. But she was wrong. Now, oh my God, this is so ironic. The Manatee County Sheriff's Department, I ain't lying. That is one of my relatives because I am the Manatee. I am a sea cow. Yeah. They chose not to issue the Amber Alert since no one had seen her abducted. There was no way to know whether crime had even taken place, is what they told the mom. Perhaps the girl just ran away from home. Now, this is the Amber Alert bugaboo that vexed the loved ones of so many children who turned up missing that makes some wonder whether the Amber Alerts are issued selectively based upon a person's influence or their status in society. It's because she's a white girl in a Florida world. Right. That's what happened. Right. Freaking and Florida. No alert was issued for Carly, even though she fit the classic profile of the most endangered category of child victim of a stranger abduction. Only about 100 of such cases, cases like that are reported each year. But nine out of 10 victims are females, half are sexually assaulted, and three out of four are killed within three hours. That's a sad statistic right there. I remember reading those statistics, man. Yeah. It, it is. It's I mean, it's a sad. sad, sad statistic. We, we have so many fucking sickos out there. We do. That, we do. And think about this. Every crime, every crime out there mm-hmm. is a crime of opportunity. Oh, yeah. So, like, okay, we know that Chinatown in Portland, that's the, that, it's a dangerous area at night. Oh, yeah. Okay? I can walk through Chinatown, and guess what? Nobody's going to say boo to me. Nobody. Right. However... Um, I'm trying to think of somebody that is that be small in Kitty. Yeah, okay. Or Danelle. They're okay. both tiny. Danelle walks down there. Same oh, street, yeah. same time. She's going to be a victim. Yeah. Because she's well, somebody an easy will try target. to make her a victim. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. they're, they're easier targets than mm-hmm. me. I'm built like a brick shithouse, man. I look like I already killed someone's family. You kind of do. <laughs> See, so, I never get messed with in Portland because I always walk with that air of confidence. You know what I mean? I don't like kind of cower away and look over my shoulder all the time. Right, right, right. So, but yeah, then and, and that's the whole thing, and that's why children are abducted, raped, and killed. Yeah, you know because an adult can overpower a kid. Wow. Yeah, that's true. It's true. So yeah, it, it can happen. And, and, and it's <laughs> They're fucked a little up. bit bigger. Yeah. It's just fucked up. I keep on telling everybody, while I joke about making you a better killer, leave the fucking kids and the hookers alone. That's right, man. But if I, I would rather you kill hookers over kids. I got to be honest. Right. Even though I fucking well, hate kids. And considering this was 2004, right, which is relatively recent, the alternative they used to the Amber Alert, you know, they said, oh, let's use this less high technology investigative tool. Want to know what they used? Uh, I don't know. Like a, just a, the radio station? No, bloodhounds. And for no reason, Fucking specific Florida. reason, they actually focused initially, just like zeroed in on the stepfather, right? 
Jesus. So Good they job, tracked Florida. Harvey's scent from the Arnold home all the way along B Ridge to Evie's car wash. Right? And then that's where the trail ended. Investigators did notice that there was a motion-activated security camera at the back of the building, which is a spot that neighborhood kids often use as a shortcut to the residential area behind it, which is what Carly was doing. So on a hunch, though, a police officer contacted the owner, Mike Evanoff, that's his name, Evanoff, to see about looking at the security footage. But they didn't get around to viewing the tapes until early Monday afternoon. So it was like 18 hours later. Bang up job, guys. Yeah. Bang up job. Good job, Sarasota. So the camera's memory indicated that it had been activated by motion at precisely 6.21 p.m. And I've seen some of this footage. When Evanoff and the police cued the device to that video snip, they were aghast at what they saw. Improbably, the camera had captured her abduction. As she walked west across the car wash property, the girl was suddenly confronted by a man who strode towards her, grabbed her right arm, spoke to her for a second, then led her away off camera toward a Buick station wagon that was also seen on the tape. We were all stunned. The guy, the owner of the company, you know, the car wash. Right, right, right. He told reporters, he goes, I wasn't really expecting to see what I saw. It was chilling. Now, Kanzler, the stepfather, was finally off. They finally left him alone, right? And Manatee authorities finally got busy with an Amber Alert on Monday night. So like 24 hours later. That eerie video clip showed rare graphic evidence of an abduction of an adolescent girl was soon being shown on news programs all across America. They noticed that the abductor was wearing a mechanic's uniform complete with a name tag and heavily tattooed arms. And he appeared to be about 5 foot 8 with like a sturdy build and dark hair. NASA and the FBI helped enhance the images, and investigators asked the public for tips. They got 800 of them, including several with precisely the same message. That person's name is Joe Smith, a friend who said he recognized Smith from the haircut and his walk. A second emphatically stated that guy on the video is Joe Smith. Holy shit. And then a woman called and said she was 100% sure that suspect is Joe Smith. <laughs> it later came to light that the callers, including Smith's former business partner, a former employer, and a housemate. Now, police visited Smith's former home and spoke with his estranged wife, and she told the detectives where he was staying. So they found drug paraphernalia there and arrested Smith as a probation violator. Smith didn't have much to say, but the people, his friends who he was staying with, Jeff and Naomi Pincus, P-I-N-C-U-S. That's an awesome fucking name right there. That is kind of cool. We're able to fill in a few of the blanks. Jeff Pincus said Smith borrowed their Buick station wagon on Sunday afternoon and a couple hours, just a couple hours before the Super Bowl. He said he would be back in 15 minutes, but he didn't show up until Monday morning, which was like 16 hours later. And when Pinkus checked the mileage before Smith left, and when he returned, he noticed that the car had driven 382 miles. Holy moly. And how did Smith seem when he finally returned? Like he had a good night's sleep or he's real happy. Uh, he just looked like he had a wonderful night. Nothing in particular seemed to weigh on him. Later that same day, Smith said a, had paid a cordial visit to his wife and their three young daughters. And his ex-wife said he seemed normal, the same old joke. Now, the search for Carly was an American crime that had become all too familiar. 
Dozens of investigators worked the case while scores of volunteers scoured the neighborhood looking for her, right? They sprayed her poster far away. City officials actually put up $50,000 rewards saying the surveillance camera footage of the abduction had made it seem more personal. And the mayor called Carly Sarasota's child. Now, Carly's mom, Susan Sherpin, stood before news cameras and pled for the girl's safe return. I want to address my Carly. I love you. I have this phone on at all times. I'm begging and pleading. Please help me bring my daughter home. Carly, if you can hear this, your mom's at home waiting for you, her, her, her dad said, right? Even the police chimed in with personal messages. One lieutenant actually said, most of all, Carly, do not give up. Some TV news crews actually set up camp near the car wash, and it, which automatically, you know how people do. They start taking gifts, you know, like teddy bears and stuff like that, and hold vigils. Yeah, little memorials and right. shit, yeah. So there were signs that would say, we miss you, come home soon, we wish you were here, in our thoughts. But all the attention and all the tears and all those good wishes and all the money in the world was too late for Carly. She was dead before the Amber Alert was issued. It seems likely before the Super Bowl game had even ended. So, so do you know why parents get on there and call for their kids? Yeah, because it humanizes them. Yeah. Because I know. It, oftentimes, yeah. Uh, psychologically, it's mm-hmm. hard to kill somebody that you view as a person and not an item. Exactly. Not an object. Yes. Yeah. Right. And the more they say their name, you know, the more it does it as well. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, yeah, they encourage parents to do that all the time. So late on, the more, on Thursday, February 5th, um, Joe's brother, John, and Patricia Davis, their mother, paid a visit to Joe at the county jail for just a family meeting. Now, Joe had not yet been charged with murder, but John and the mother pressed him to come clean. Over and over again, Patricia kept looking at him in the eye and said, tell me where the girl is. After he denied it repeatedly, he finally confessed. He goes, I really fucked up. He explained he had a far out cocaine trip and didn't remember much of what happened. He admitted that he had rough sex with a child using precisely the same phrase as Robert Chambers did in the infamous preppy murder case in New York 20 years before that. Um, and said he may have killed her. He said he could have he could direct his mom and brother to the body, which was concealed not far from the site of where he abducted her. Jeez. Right, but he warned them not to go to the authorities, hoping he could use the location of the body as a bargaining chip. The brother resurrected a childhood code to use over the phone, with Station C used to mean the location of Carly's body. Now, this all led to one of the more peculiar amateur investigations in the annals of American history, American crime, right? Now, John Smith later said he decided to conduct the search because I was curious to see if anything he said was accurate. Following Joe Smith's direction, John and their mother drove that same afternoon to the Central Church of Christ on Proctor Road just off I-75 within two miles of that car wash. Now, John, who at the time weighed nearly 300 pounds, and his mother tried to look inconspicuous as they strolled along the church property for signs of an adolescent corpse, you know, Station C. Right. So when they failed to find anything, John and Joe Smith exchanged a series of phone calls that evening. During one conversation, Joe suggested that John might be able to collect the $50,000 reward if he found the body. Now, for a few crazy minutes, they, you know, they talked about it and they mulled over it. Um, 
on whether John should grab the, you know, try to go for the money and then designate it to benefit the killer's daughters. But John finally began to panic, believing that his phone conversations were being monitored. Um, and, you know, normally when you're in jail, you there is that possibility. Correct. Like, highly possibility. But as luck would have it for Joe at that time, his calls were not being recorded. I know, Jesus right? Christ. So, fearing that he would be culpable, John actually dropped actually turned his brother in and called the FBI. <laughs> At 9 o'clock that night, he, his mother, and the Sarasota detective Toby Davis and FBI agents David Street and Leo Martinez went back to the church property and searched again. Now, while he was still talking to his brother, Joe guided the group by phone from his jail cell. He said he remembered placing the body between two trees and the odd, you know, that group of people focused on a small grove of Brazilian pepper trees not far from the church. Finally, near midnight, the body of Carly was found. It was in the grove behind a chain-link fence, and I guess um, Joe's mother was wept so loudly that her son could hear her through the phone. And then Joe kept saying, tell mom I'm sorry. I was not thinking right. Now, Joe may have been sorry, but forensic examination of the body indicated that he was merciless. She had been raped vaginally and orally. She was strangled by a lick, like a garrote twisted tight around her neck. And as a final insult, he had dragged her body over, over the uh, blacktop, crushed uh, over blacktop, crushed rock, and palmetto shrubs to give it her makeshift grave. Jeez. Right? What a, what a piece of work, Yeah, man. except why couldn't he just carry her? You know what I mean? God. It's like... So the coroners reckon that she had been killed on the night of her abduction, and she had been the arc, you know, the typical child victim of a stranger abduction, an adolescent female who was raped then murdered. Now, Dr. Russell Vega, the medical examiner, said Carly fought for her life, though. He found cuts and bruises on her arms, legs, and left heel. She had struggled against her attacker as best she could. Um, now, Joe said drugs made him do it, that he didn't... He hadn't been himself that day after he shot up a pure, potent strain of cocaine. But then he hadn't been himself for most of his life. He was born in Brooklyn, New York on March 17th, 1966, and drugs and depression took hold early in his life. He said he was a heroin addict by the age of 19, but he was also Catholic um, in his narcotics habit, cocaine, crack, prescription, opiate painkillers, and speed. Right? And a Catholic. I think that's the worst of it all. He was a passable auto mechanic and was employed as often as not, um, but he had no self-control when it came to narcotics. And drug vendors ended one job or another, or one relationship after another. You know, he just couldn't keep anybody in his life, couldn't hold a job down. Right, then more static skin. Right, and then, of course, depression set in, and the convenient enemy was always the drugs, right? It's the drug's fault. The drug's right, fault. Right, right, right. But what came first? The addiction or the depression? That's what, you know, some people need to realize. In either way, his life entered a well-worn rut and stayed there. After he struggled with crack in New York in the 80s, he tried to get a fresh start by moving to Florida in 1991. That did not work. He narrowly survived an overdose in 93, and he spent most of the next decade in and out of jail, on probation, or in rehab. Um, between his lockups, he managed to carry, to marry, uh, his wife and 
was the father of three daughters. So in many ways, he embodied the American criminal justice dilemma over narcotics. He was more, arrested more than a dozen times in Florida, mostly for felony drug violations. And under the law, he could have been locked up for long stretches. But again and again, he was allowed to plead no contest in exchange for probation, community service, or, uh, community supervision, and house arrest or mandatory rehab. At times, he was a functioning member of society with a home, a family, and a job. And probation officers seemed to like him. They wrote, you know, prob uh, not promising, but, you know, favorable reports on his progress. And when he fell off the wagon, he often managed to convince a judge, you know, just give me another shot. Give me another shot. And he often got them. Now, the final series event in Joe's long criminal history began when he was sentenced to six months for house arrest in March of 2000 for narcotics, narcotics violation involving OxyContin. Um, which we all know is a pr- prescription opiate that is highly addictive. Correct. So he went to rehab at Phoenix House in May and as part of his sentence. But a month later, his wife tipped his probation officer that he was again strung out on OxyContin. She had 20 bottles of pills at home as proof. Holy 20 cow. 20 bottles. Hey, sweetheart, send those to me. <laughs> My address is. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. So a judge opted to extend his probation rather than lock him up. And the probation officer gave him a glowing report after six months. So Smith opened, then expanded his own car repair shop and was in connubial bliss, as the officer put it, over the birth of his daughter. The fuck does connubial mean? I have no clue. Hang on. Let me look. I have look. never heard that I know. That I word. had never heard it either, and I forgot to look it up first. But, oh, it's an adjective meaning relating to marriage or the relationship of a married couple, conjugal, their connubial bed. So American, apparently him and his daughter were in love because they just had a daughter. Him and his wife were in love because oh, okay. they just had oh, wait, a daughter. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's not what I meant to say. Me- meanwhile, in Arkansas. No, it's, it's, it's getting later. Um, so uh, apparently that was a definite improvement, his probation officer wrote, um, about Smith in February 20, 2001, saying he's coming up in the world. But he was arrested in jail that September after he tried to pass a fraudulent prescription for Dilaudid, which is another highly addictive opiate. Which is awesome. I like that. See, I'm allergic to Dilaudid. So, yeah. So he sat in jail for nearly 13 months from December 13, 2001, till January 1, 2003. But nine days after Smith was freed, police found him so high on cocaine that he had passed out in his car. Rather than send him back to jail, the county, the circuit court judge, Harry Rapkin, just extended his probation by three more years. That August, he grabbed a knife and threatened to kill himself during an argument with his wife, and he was committed to a mental facility. Then his wife and his mother told the authorities that he needed long-term psychiatric commitment, but he was out in less than a month. Okay, well, I got to defend the judge on this, okay? Right. He probably saw the good that could come out of this guy and saw that he really was trying Right. But, man, I tell you, man, addiction's a bitch to it kick. It is a bitch to kick. So, maybe the judge was sympathetic to that, going, man, I, I see this dude's trying. Yeah. He is trying. Right. So Yeah, because he wasn't violent. Right, right, you right. You know, he was just using drugs. And, and believe me, I want to say, man, this is just for our listeners, I want to say every bad thing in the book about this guy, because this, show, this right. Joe Smith's a piece of shit. Right. However, I can see where the judge is coming from. Right. You know, uh, addiction's hard to kick, and the dude's trying. He's fucking trying to kick it. Right. Okay. Now, how this ends, of course, is fucked up. Right. 
So now, of course, you know, his wife kicked him out, so he's jobless, he's homeless, he's been sleeping on the house, on the couch at the Pincuses. Pincuses. Say that real fast ten times. He didn't even say it and once. And he was doing odd jobs around the neighborhood just to support his drug habit. Now, he was, even though he was given chance after chance, he would just fritter them away. And no matter who handed them to him in the justice system, in the end, those second chances left him free to cross paths with Carly Brucci on that Super Bowl Sunday in 2004. Now, Florida criminal justice authorities have tried to salve their guilt over his the charitable treatment he received by insisting that he exhibited no signs of being a violent sexual predator, which is what we said. He hadn't. He was just a drug addict. You know, right. continually using drugs. He wasn't harming people. He wasn't, like, committing crimes, really. Right, Just, right. you know. I've known plenty of addicts that fall off the wagon time and time and time again. Right. But eventually get clean, and they're trying. And they're not violent people. Yeah. You know, so I I, I don't want anybody out well, there, uh, you know, because hindsight's but, always twenty twenty. Right. And right now, I'm sure there's people out there that are going, oh, well, it's the judge's fault. And blah, blah, blah. Dude, I totally well, see where the judge is coming from. Right. Well, see, there's like I said, they're trying to see he had no signs of violent sexual predator. However, there were some. On July 1st of 1997, he actually approached a 32-year-old woman outside a convenience store in Sarasota, and he asked for help with a card that wouldn't start. She agreed, but someone in the store actually called the police because they noticed that uh, Joseph Smith had a knife in his shorts, concealed in his shorts. So the cops went to the scene to intercede, and they found both a knife and a can of pepper spray. His car was, uh, per- and his car was perfectly functional. He was leading her to a vehicle he did not own that was parked in a dark, remote area. Now, the police lieutenant reported that Smith intended to do great harm by using a ploy to get a young woman alone in a vehicle, but again, the judge gave him a year probation. Okay, that that right, right there. I can't defend because right. that is starting to show the path that he's going to wind up on right, right there. And then four months after that, he was accused of brandishing a knife against another woman, but he, the jury acquitted him on that case. So, yeah. And the verdict was never seriously in doubt during Joe Smith's murder trial, which was held in fall of 2005. The car wash surveillance videotape, evidence from and about the borrowed car used in the abduction, and the testimony extracted from John, his brother, and about Joe's jailhouse confession all but sealed this guy's fate. So after two weeks of testimony, the jury of eight women and four men convicted him of murder, kidnapping, and sexual battery. Now... In most courtroom histrionics have occurred during the penalty phase, you know, of a trial. Right. When each side presented evidence as to whether Smith should live or die. Now, Carly's future, um, her grand, her paternal grandmother said, uh, Carly's future in life had been stolen from her and from her family. We will never know her as a teenager. Our family is forever broken. Our nightmares about what you've done to her, our hearts will never heal. And then Susan, the mother, said, I can no longer watch her grow. I can only imagine her in a wedding gown walking down the aisle. Um, the judge, the jury was crying when uh, Carly's mom was speaking. Now, the prosecutor's assistant state attorney, Greg Schaefer, and Deborah Jones-Riva presented a long list of aggravating factors as weighing in favor of the death penalty, not least of which was Smith was merciless when he strangled the child to death. Now, Dr. Vega, the medical examiner, estimated that Smith chose 
choked Carly for several minutes before he killed her. This gave him time for a substantial, I mean, gave him time to stop what he was doing. Oh, totally. You know what I mean? So Smith's three attorneys, all coin appointed, tried to portray him as a sympathetic human being. Joe is a man with many good qualities, but he was unable to control his drug addiction. Now, 13 friends and acquaintances, but not his immediate family members, smoke, spoke on his behalf. There were no revelations about Mother Teresa moments in his life, right? <laughs> he loved animals. He once helped a girlfriend learn to drive. He gave gasoline to a biker whose tank was dry. He was nice to his niece. He worked cheap on cars. One of his other lawyers, Adam Tabrugge, tried to cast Smith as a, something of a victim of a lenient treatment and ineffective rehab commitments dating back to 92. So that's basically blaming somebody else for his client's behavior. Right, it's playing the blame game. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of ridiculous. Okay, yeah. look here. Okay, while I can appreciate, like I said, what the judge said, okay? Mm-hmm. And the judge being lenient. At the end of the day, right? you let a guy who, had, who could, was on a path to be a right. sexual predator. Right. Walk away. That's a number one. Right. And number two, well, he's just a victim of his own addictions. Hey, here's the thing, man. Play the game, pay the price. Or the uh, the, the wow. modern equivalent yeah. is fuck around and find out. Right. And exactly. that's what happened. And to be honest, I'm all for the death penalty with this guy. Oh, me, me too. I don't care how nice y'all think he was or, you know, that he blew some dude or whatever the fuck he did. This guy... Murdered a an innocent fucking child and took his For time. No reason took his fucking time exactly. raping her mm-hmm. and killing her. Exactly, and had plenty of opportunities to stop what he was doing. And that's not all raging on cocaine. That no. is your own inner mm-hmm. demon going. This is what I want to do. This is what I enjoy. Don't give me yep. that bullshit right yeah, there. Exactly. Fuck. I mean, you're talking to two drug addicts here, and we never resorted to that. Sort of violence. You know what I mean? I've never killed a child, but I have killed some pussy. Oh, my God. So this attorney actually said the defendant repeatedly sought help for his problems, but was either denied help or received ineffective assistance for his problems. Okay, I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing him repeatedly going to court and jail for drugs, but I'm not seeing him asking for the help. Uh, Me neither. And here's the thing. You can have the best rehab program in the world. But if you don't want it. Yeah, if you don't want to change. Mm -mm. Yeah, then you're not going to fucking change. Exactly. You have to want it. He didn't want it. He wanted the drugs. You okay? Yeah, side note. Why is your mom trying to send me a message on Facebook? I have no idea. Oh, I guess I'll have to. It's just, it came up. I'm like, wait a minute. I know that name. <laughs> I'll like check it later. It's just weird. Um, <laughs> me of all people. Now, um, in the end, the jury voted 10 to 2 in favor of execution over what the jurors described was an emotional deliberation. Now, Judge Andrew Owens was charged with making the final decision about Smith's fate, but under Florida law, he was compelled to give the recommendation great weight. Joe Smith, who had gained considerable weight since he was arrested, was given a chance to stand before the judge to make a case for his life. He says, I do not ask for mercy for myself. The only thing I can see to give me a life sentence is for my family. I do not want to see them hurt any further. He said on that Super Bowl Sunday he was trying to kill himself after a lifetime of drug addiction. I just wanted to die that day. 
Now, Judge Owens granted his wish. On March 16, 2006, the day before Carly's birthday, Smith was condemned to death good. by injection. Fucking good. Yeah. The judge says her death was conscienceless and pitiless and undoubtedly unnecessarily torturous. The scales of life and death tilt unequivocally on the side of death. Now, Smith who's in a prison jumpsuit, just stared ahead and had no emotion. And Carly's family were also just really quiet. You know, normally there's shouts of joy in a situation like that, but they had nothing. Right? And um, her aunt said, a lot of people want probably want to ask me, am I happy with the verdict? I don't think you're ever happy. Happy would be having Carly next to me. After giving her a hug and a kiss, watching her grow up and celebrating her 13th birthday tomorrow, which will never happen. That would be happiness. Dunn Smith, one of the 374 men on death row in Florida, is just biding his time at the Correctional Center. He must be eating well, of course, because his weight has ballooned. He's over 219 pounds. He's more than 40 pounds heavier than the day he was arrested. And his most prison, most recent prison mugshot shows him with hog, you know, like the chubby cheeks. And average, on average, a condemned man in Florida, uh, condemned Florida con- convict will wait 13 years before they're executed. Smith shouldn't expect visits from his wife and daughters in the interim. Five months after he was sentenced, she won a divorce decree that barred him from having any contact with his daughters. She sold their house and just vanished. Um, now, for the few, for few of the players in this murder drama emerge as sympathetic figures, okay? John Smith, the brother, the snitch, also admitted to a long battle of drug addiction. Even Connie Arnold, whose house Carly was walking home from when she was abducted, has since been arrested for trying to buy cocaine in her neighborhood. But perhaps most unseemingly was the victim's mother. She had had a troubled life even before Carly was killed, including a drug arrest in 95 when Carly was three and a domestic violence arrest in 99. And months before Carly was killed, Sharpen was reportedly miss- was reported missing by her husband. When she finally turned up, she told authorities she had a relapse. Now, things only got worse, right? Um, Sharpen showed up at a somber Valentine's Day in 2004 memorial service for her daughter, an event that was attended by hundreds of people from Sarasota, um, and she arrived in a white limousine. She then neglected to attend the first week of uh, Joe's trial. And when she did briefly show up, she said she did so to deny that she had known Joe through drug circles, uh, which was a rumor that was going around. Um, she had two film producers at her side, and she met them at a Sarasota Hotel karaoke night nightclub and treated the brief court appearance as a marketing tool for their movie. She was also showing off a new figure. She had lost 70 pounds after her daughter had been murdered. And she was asked by reporters to talk about Carly, but she brushed them off. She says, you'll just have to watch the movie. Right? What a peach. I know, right? That's what I'm saying. So her life has continued to play out in the newspapers over the years. In August of 2004, her son, Leif, seven, was taken from her when the state determined her chronic drug use made her an unfit mother. A couple weeks after that, uh, Stephen was arrested for domestic violence after he got in a fight with her. In July of 2005, her mother, Eileen, evicted her from the, their house which because she owned it. And authorities said the house had become a drug hangout. Police were called there repeatedly, including one night when a man was stabbed in a drug dispute while Susan was just passed out in the other room. 
And Eileen Sharpen told reporters she had just had enough. I can't pay her bills anymore. She's got to get out on her own, which I understand. Right, right, right. I get it. So, and then in January 2006, Susan was accused of selling $300 cash, a $5,000 ring, and a credit card from her father. The father also said that he gave his daughter a check for 800 to pay for drug rehab, but she cast it and just bought drugs. Then January 19th that year, she was arrested for prostitution in St. Petersburg. She went to jail for several months and was locked up on the day that Joe was sentenced. Um, and then in June of 2006, she was arrested again for prostitution in Manatee County after agreeing to, agreeing to perform oral sex for $20. That's uh, it? Yeah, and the police found a crack pipe in her bra. Oh, hold on, hold on. Hold on stop right there. I'm booking a flight. <laughs> to Manatee County right they, now. Uh, the blowjobs are cheap there. I'm mean, <laughs> dang, not married. She told the judges after sentencing that her drug problem depression had raged since Carly's murder. She promised to do her time, then moved back to the Florida Keys to make a fresh start. But there is Carly's legacy also. After Carly was raped and murdered, it, the Manatee County Sheriff's Department tactically acknowledged that an Amber Alert might have helped save this girl's life. No shit, Sherlock. Right. Now, the national system to quickly alert the media and public about missing children is said to have led to the recovery of at least 200 children, right? Some jurisdictions have been criticized for using too many of them, but often in cases that involve runaways or parental custody disputes. Officials fear that the public will become numb by too many Amber Alerts, right? So at a minimum, a federal standard suggests that before an Amber Alert is issued, law enforcers must confirm that an abduction of someone 17 or younger has occurred, that the child or teen is at serious risk, and that there is a sufficient descriptive information of the child, the captor, or the vehicle. Now, Carly did not qualify for an Amber Alert under that criteria, right? Yet... Various juris local jurisdictions often issued alerts, even in cases where this, not all the standards were met. Now, Manate Manatee County is now one of them. Sheriff Charlie Wells changed policy on media notification in cases like Carly's, and he ordered his department to notify the local media immediately when parents believe their children are missing or in danger. Now, such cases will not qualify for a statewide or national alert, but the local media will be alerted and a detective will be assigned right away. She said the uh, Major Connie Shingledecker. <laughs> That's an awesome name right there. I know. Sometimes I hate saying them because I never know what your action is going to be. She said, my feeling is this. Always err on the side of caution. Now, Florida's probation officers are now taking that same approach. There's a new zero-tolerance policy towards probation violators who has, has also, you know, started in the state. And county jail populations have increased exponentially as a result of that. But, yeah, so, you know, Carly's and all I know is you just, you report it as an Amber Alert right away <coughs> as opposed to, Waiting, you know what I mean? Yeah, which is a good thing, man. Because they waited twenty four hours. Yeah, that's didn't that's even check for surveillance tapes till eighteen hours. Yeah, that's so. That's goddamn man. Yeah, but she was reported missing within ten minutes of when she was supposed to be home. Yeah, you know the the cops dropped the ball. I mean, they she would have been she, she would have been dead ball. anyway. She could have been, but maybe not. You know, maybe somebody would have seen the car or seen, like, been okay. on the lookout for something suspicious and reported okay. it. She might have been raped, but maybe right. she wouldn't have been dead. Okay, I'll concede to that. Yeah. You know, it, it makes sense. Because he took his time with her. So, 
The whole that's just beyond fucked up. It is beyond fucked. Whenever up. I hear that, I still I still think of my kids. I know, me too. You know, me too. Well, yours is a fruit. I got a daughter. Um, <laughs> it's he's still up. my child. I always I still worry about him to this day, and he knows martial arts and is a giant. Nah, <laughs> but he's still fruity. Stop um, it. Rudy Tootie, fresh and fruity. Is he somebody's breakfast? He could be. <laughs> he Yuck. could be. I don't want to think about that. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> there are some things a mother should never think about. It's lunchtime. <laughs> Ew, <sick bugger. laughs> so. Oh, man. Sweet and sour you. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to you. But, yeah. So, like I said, it. There, this case was fucked up from the beginning. Yeah, pretty fucked up. You know, and it just it just makes me sad that, you know, because like I said, I don't think they could have prevented her rape, but maybe just maybe they could have prevented her death. You just, but you never know. Right, right, right. You know, so that all you got? That's all I have. Remember, boys and girls, you can send us an email at brutalnation at twistedbluellc.com. Check us out on Medium, Crimebeat on Medium, and wherever the hell you happen to be getting your blogs. Log on to the Facebooks, the Book of the Faces, and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. Come and join us. Have a good time. Also, check out Todd Kolev's book, SK101. It's available in book form and... Uh, e-book and, and... Yeah, e-book and... And hard copy. And hard copy. Paperback. Yeah, that's it. Goddamn. This show's copyrighted 2024 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, except for Metal Cross Radio, <laughs> they're lying. Thieving bastards. bastards. And we will talk to you glorious motherfuckers later. Bye-bye. Bye.